In this edition of the podcast, Shaken to His Core, the untold story of Sidney Nolan's Auschwitz. Currently underway at the Sydney Jewish Museum, the exhibition of 50 works by Sir Sidney Nolan are derived from a series never before seen in Australia. We speak with curator Rosalind Sugarman about the collection, the story behind Nolan's study of the Holocaust, and how the intensity of suffering experienced at Auschwitz could be translated into paint. I'm Tim Stackpole, and this is Inside the Gallery. Thanks for downloading the podcast once again as we acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land upon which this podcast is produced and downloaded. And we pay our respects to First Nations people around the world, whether they be past, present or emerging. And a reminder too that a transcript of this edition is available in the episode's description at www.insidethegallery.com.au made possible by the Australian Arts Channel, available to view for free at www.australianartschannel.com.au. Best known for his bold modernist work, Sidney Nolan elevated the mythology of the Australian bush to global prominence and earned himself a place amongst the most significant artists of the 20th century. Yet his deeply expressive response to the Holocaust of the Second World War, where around 6.5 million Jews were systematically murdered by the Nazis, has until now remained pretty much unseen and unknown. An exhibition of his works in this regard at the Sydney Jewish Museum uncovers an important chapter in his life and work, a series of images painted with great intensity during 1961 as the Adolf Eichmann trial came to a close and as Nolan prepared to visit Auschwitz himself. Museum curator Rosalind Sugarman joined the Sydney Jewish Museum in 2005 to curate an exhibition for the 60th anniversary of liberation from the concentration camps, and since then she's been responsible for countless exhibitions and fit-outs to the building, including in 2017 when the museum opened a new permanent Holocaust exhibition marking the first major redevelopment of the Holocaust display since 1992. Roz, thanks for joining us on the podcast. Thank you, Tim. I'm really grateful that you are interested in our exhibition. I think I, I do need to begin, first of all, with a bit of a warning. Along with the intensity of the work, this is a very distressing subject to cover, and never to be forgotten, of course, and we'll go about this with a certain level of deep sensitivity, but wise nonetheless to suggest, I think, that the content in this edition of the podcast might prove triggering for some listeners. Well, it's interesting because most visitors coming to our museum will know that they're coming to a Holocaust museum and should in some sense be prepared for some of the difficult content that they're going to be faced with. Mm. But um, we decided, or um, in consultation with my colleagues at the museum, we decided that the Nolan exhibition in particular needed a separate warning because yeah. some of the images are very graphic and some of the ways which we describe the atrocities that took place during the Second World War are quite graphic. And yeah. So we have a separate warning for that. So I think I'm very pleased that you brought this up at the outset because I think it's quite important for listeners to realize that there, you know, there's some very graphic um, material 
um, that they might be visualizing and it could be a trigger for and, and ideas we don't want to traumatize our mm. listeners or our viewers. We mm. want to teach them about this really difficult period of history but not have them suffer the kind of trauma that the victims and their families had endured. Okay, thank you for sharing that. Now we'll just get into the collection here. It is absolutely remarkable, this Sydney Nolan collection. Very unique. How did you come to learn of it? Well, I have to say I'm quite proud of the fact that it really was, you could say, a stroke of serendipity. <laughs> so by chance, about um, two years ago, I went down into the basement of the museum to visit our resident historian, who is Professor Conrad Quitt. And um, I just normally catch up with him once or twice a week. And um, I went to his office and he had someone with him at the time. And he introduced me to him and said, you know, in his very deep uh, kind of German accent, mm. you know, you should meet this person. Um, his name's Andrew Turley, and he's done some research on Sidney Nolan's Auschwitz paintings. And um, obviously, I'd, I had heard of um, Sidney Nolan, but never knew that he'd engaged with the subject matter of Auschwitz or mm. the Holocaust. And mm. so that really did pique my interest. And um, sort of sight unseen, not even knowing what research he'd done or having seen any of the paintings, I suggested that perhaps we could curate an exhibition together. And I guess it was just as I say, fortuitous, but yeah. at the same time, just realizing that um, this is something that really relates to our museum. So the reason why Andrew Turley, who, as I said, had done some research on, on Nolan, was with our historian, was that um, he came to really check with our historian whether the research that he'd done as it relates um, to the Holocaust and to the Jewish people, he was checking that it was done with historical integrity and cultural sensitivity. Mm, mm. And so it's really just luck that I met him on that day and that he was amenable to the idea of an exhibition. And um, I, I compiled an exhibition proposal and put it to the museum's board and the museum CEO. And um, in the interim, Andrew, you know, he, he used his contacts and helped get approval for the concept from the Lady Nolan Estate in Victoria, right. where this uh, remarkable collection is actually housed, mm. and also the Nolan Trust in the UK, who holds the copyright of all Nolan's work. Wow. So quite extensive. What, what was the period of time it took you to prepare all this? I'd been thinking about it for quite a long time um, and thought about how I might approach the exhibition. Mm. Um, as it turned out, I don't even know whether this is sort of share-worthy, but the truth is we had a window of opportunity to put on an exhibition, and I thought that the Nolan would be quite an easy or simple exhibition to curate because I just imagined it was artwork. I'd have them framed, put them on the wall, have a bit of context, <laughs> and that would be that. Yes. So, so, so one of my colleagues and I joke it was meant to be our easy-peasy exhibition, if you like, but... Um, exhibitions are, are much more complex and yeah. nuanced than that. And yeah. so it did take quite a lot of planning. And um, So are we talking 18 months here, Rosalind, do you think, start to finish? Start to finish. I would actually say this is the quickest exhibition I've ever put together. Right. And one of the reasons was um, that it could be sort of pursued so quickly is because the research had been done. Yeah. It hadn't been done by myself, so I'm not the knowledge holder. Yeah, right. In this case, it is Andrew Turley, and I give him all the credit mm. for sharing very generously and, you know, with a lot of uh, passion, 
what he'd, what he'd discovered about this period of Nolan's um, works. And so it could never have been done in a short period without that. And then, um, since you're asking, Tim, I, you know, as a curator, I know who to turn to for, for getting the best parts that are needed from, from other experts. Yeah. So I could turn to our resident historian to provide the context for for the historical aspect of the exhibition because it's very much embedded in the history of Auschwitz and in the um, Eichmann trial. Mm. And, you know, so I knew who to turn to for for collaborating and getting inputs. Yeah, you're perfectly positioned, basically, Rosalind, I think is the situation. But still, it's surprising that this is one of the few times that so many of these Nolan works have actually been seen. We don't relate his works to you know, mostly anything to do with the Holocaust. Oh, I agree with you. It's not the first thing that comes to mind. It's no. probably the last thing that yeah. comes to mind when one thinks of Nolan. And I think at the top of everyone's mind, if you mention Sidney Nolan, Ned Kelly's name is going to come up. Mm. And, uh, you know, the mythologizing of the Australian landscape is what one's very familiar with. Um, so I guess it is surprising in some way that it's taken this long for Nolan's Auschwitz paintings to be revealed to the world. But then I guess it's not surprising because they were private works, or at least that's the way I understand them to be. They were private works in his own personal collection. Mm. And um, perhaps they stayed private and stayed with him because they revealed such a visceral outpouring of emotion and I was actually even considering this morning when I was looking at the exhibition and going through it, you know, quietly on my own, yeah. um, whether he ever had any intentions to have them sold or, you know, commercialized. And I guess the answer is in the fact that he kept them yeah. private from the world. Yeah. So the answer, one, it's not really speculation. The answer would possibly be no, that they were never intended for kind of a public consumption. We often talk in the podcast about the inspiration and, you know, the inspiration for these comes from a very dark place, but oftentimes the artist cannot rest until they have actually expressed what they're feeling inside, what is welling up inside and put that down on the canvas or if they're an author, putting it down on the page. And they're often compelled, I think, wondering whether these items are actually, they compelled him the stories and the experience that he had, um, shaken to his core, they compelled him to record these onto the canvas. He couldn't rest until he'd actually recorded what he felt. Well, I think you've probably tapped into something really important about these works, and that is the element of emotion. Mm. And I think that um, they, they're a very visceral, kind of very strong emotion comes through in the way Nolan painted them and in obviously in the subject matter and the fact that he did them as a series. And um, I remember reading once that, you know, a quote from Nolan himself when he said how something to the effect that he was compelled or yeah. dedicated to transmitting emotions yeah. and that he didn't really care so much for how fast he got the paint onto the canvas or the paper, but the fact was to get an emotional communication. And I think that comes through so strongly in the works. And I think as a viewer, one responds to that, um, to that emotion coming through, very raw, very guttural. And in a way, we try to, when, when Andrew and I were conceiving how we would put the exhibition together, we very much thought about how to get emotion across. 
So what can we expect to see in a material sense? What have you got hanging? The the 50 illustrates, in a sense, three main themes. And we've hung these three different themes differently to demonstrate their differences and also in a way to perhaps to highlight some of their similarities. So, for example, um, firstly, and I'm only saying firstly because Nolan painted them first. Firstly, there's a group of uh, paintings of heads of Adolf Eichmann um, that he did in November, December 1961, just in fact before Eichmann was sentenced. And these paintings, Nolan sort of fills sheets of paper with Eichmann's face and he painted the same face with the same features over and over. Mm. And this was the face of Eichmann that the world was seeing at the time. Um, Everyone who was following the trial of this horrendous Nazi Mm. um, was seeing these images of him in the daily newspaper where he was recognizable by a, um, a broad forehead, a receding hairline. He wore round, you know, black glasses. And um, so Nolan's images of him really reflect or echo photos that he saw daily. So that's the one group um, that we, where we've selected, I think it's seven or eight paintings. And then there's another group. So once Nolan had had painted Eichmann series, if you like, he moved um, onto painting um, victim heads. And then in this series of paintings, we see victims, um, just their faces, um, some of them in a striped camp uniform, some with vertical bars, um, sort of superimposed, very much like giving you the impression that they imprisoned or are imprisoned. Yeah. And some of the heads are clouded or wreathed in a kind of a smoky haze, and many have facial features that are sort of scratched directly out of the paint um, in quite a kind of an visual, um, a visceral way. Mm. And these, these are very powerful images, and I'm, I wouldn't mind talking about some of them in more detail a bit later, but I just wanted to get on to the third theme. Mm-hmm. So so we've spoken about the first two, and the third that he did, which he did in early January 1962, and I'm mentioning the date because um, I, I, I want to interject at this point that um, Nolan painted these Auschwitz series before he actually visited Auschwitz. So if one keeps that in mind, now we come to the third series, if you like, or it seems to be well grouped as a theme. These are these are images that one might describe as a tortured stream of skeletons, their mm-hmm. bodies piled on top of each other, their bodies overflowing trolleys. And um, amongst these piles of bodies, there's smoking crosses or what might see as, or one might call a crucifix. And these works are very powerful displayed in the series, I guess, for maximum emotive impact. So even though these works could stand on their own, they're done as a series, and I think we, we want people to view them as such. So in a, so when you say what can you expect to see in the exhibition, on the one hand, there's these, um, you know, 50 original artworks, but there, there are a couple of add-ons that add to the exhibition. So as I said earlier on, of course, this could... In an art gallery, an art museum, they might have possibly only displayed Nolan's paintings. Mm. But because we are a Holocaust museum, we took the opportunity to to kind of immerse or kind of fully contextualize them in, yeah. in the history in which they were made. So we, we have included some text panels, 
but of course, we're very mindful to make them short and poignant. We didn't want too much reading to take place because the main idea is the looking and the, you know, the sitting down on a bench and just looking at these very powerful paintings. So, yes, there's text panels, there's a couple of artifacts from our collection, and then there's also some photographs that Nolan himself took when he did visit Auschwitz, and a couple of other things like quotes from some of our survivors. What you've described, some of the artwork is is horrendous, and we have warned people about what to expect when they visit what is now called the Sydney Jewish Museum, which I, I guess is an extension of what we perhaps remember as the Sydney Holocaust Museum. Is that correct? It's always had the title Sydney Jewish Museum, and it used to have a byline, Holocaust and Jewish History. Right. Um, so it is very much um, a Holocaust museum, but also a Jewish museum. So we, we serve both functions, really. I guess I'm, I'm wondering about how easy it has been for you as a curator to connect all these pieces together, these 50 pieces of artwork, with that more general aspect. I'm just wondering whether if there is a, a bit of a broadening here or perhaps more of a focus on what the institution is, is hoping to communicate, not just to the Jewish community within, within Sydney, but the broader community. I mean, pretty much every secondary school student makes a trip to your museum at some point in their education as well. There's just no end to the horror of this history. Yes, we are We are Holocaust Museum and we tell the story of this period of history very much from a survivor perspective, from a survivor point of view. And we like to humanise our exhibitions mm. beyond, you know, merely providing historical facts and figures. And obviously, we provide that, and we even have done that in in the Nolan exhibition. So, for example, it's very clear that um, that Auschwitz is a place where 1.3 million people were murdered, of which 1.1 million were Jewish people. Mm. So we we do have some hard hitting facts and figures. Um, then we do have, I think this is what makes this exhibition particularly in- interesting, is that we have an artist of, of the stature of Nolan yeah. with an international and a, and a very strong national reputation um, that he is grappling with this subject. He's grappling with this history and struggling to find a language and a visual language at that through which he can communicate um, not only his own response and his reactions or emotions about this period of history, but kind of a responsibility as a as a major artist to do something about this history. So how do you cope, Rosalind? You're immersed in this aspect of history constantly. I mean, how do you mentally cope and and indeed remain objective? It's an, that's it's a very interesting question you've asked, and I sometimes question that of myself, and sometimes you know, worry if if I've become a little bit too desensitized. Mm. But I think as a curator, we have a different role and responsibility, say, to our educators. So our education team, I often find they're sitting and listening to survivor stories. They, um, you know, teaching and, and explaining to the public, to visitors, to school groups. They do tend to get a quite a lot more emotional and they also face to face with people and are responding to how other people are responding to what they're learning. When you're the curator, you, you, I think you're much more objective because you're looking at 
I have a responsibility to take this concentration camp jacket and make sure that it's stored in the best condition possible. I'm going to document it, photograph it, or if it's a document, I'm going to scan it. I'm, you know, I'm going to record the history. We've got sort of processes to follow that sort of remove you somewhat from the horror of what you're dealing with mm. and, and make it, um, you know, collection management as such. So there, certainly there are times when, when something cuts through and yep. you hear a story and it's just incredible and it stays with you. And that happens really often. But I think just in terms of sort of the, um, the administrative duties that you're forced to do is what really does help keep the job from getting too emotional otherwise I don't think you could function no it is tough it is a tragic yeah it's a tragic and it's you know you're dealing with genocide and every day you're meeting if not a survivor then a descendant or a grandchild yes. or some family member that has a connection to someone who was murdered and you you know you're hearing these stories and you're trying to help them find ways to commemorate and to remember and you're kind of assuring them that what they perhaps donating to the museum we will look after and take care of for, for posterity. So, so you, you kind of go into curator mode. I mean, if I just think about elderly neighbours of mine who have Jewish ancestry, they may have medical conditions. Their doctor asks them about family history and they say, well, I can't tell you what my family history is because I lost my family, my ancestors, in the Holocaust. Well, this is really the point that the Holocaust did not end in 1945 when the war ended. It's a history that reverberates mm. through time, through place, through people. And it is really ongoing. And I think the trauma is actually passed down to generations. And it's not something that ever ends. So mm. you're absolutely right. There, it affects people in so many ways. I mean, I meet so many second generation who say, we never knew our grandparents. Yeah. We never had grand grandparents. We never had extended family. We grew up, you know, in this vacuum of family. So and many people grew up not even knowing they're Jewish or perhaps um, not knowing their parents' experiences because their parents wanted to protect them mm. and not tell them about it. So, mm. yes, it's exactly as you described. It's a history that bears with us today. In going through and going back to the Nolan works, uh, which is the exhibition we're talking about, which is on at the Sydney Jewish Museum right now, is there a single piece that, that crumpled you inside when you had a look at it? Trying to think of one that might stand out above others. Um, and in a way, it's, it might be unfair to pick one out from a series, but there certainly is one of an unidentified victim head where the face is twisted and tortured and the mouth is open as if in a scream. Mm. And I think this work reminds me very much of the impact of um, a work that I saw many years ago. It's Edvard Munch's The Scream. Yes, I think yes. it was from about 1890s, yep. 1893, somewhere around then. Yep. That very, you know, artists and art lovers would, would be familiar with mm. this iconic work. Mm. And that sort of agonized figure, which depicts or expresses extreme anxiety, extreme fear, um, I, I look at that and then see Nolan's paintings of a victim, and I see it as being no less powerful than mm. that iconic work. Mm. So... Amongst um, the series of works, there's some, well, most of them are strong, but there's some that speak to me in particular, and that would be one of them. Mm. It's, uh, it's a representation of millions of people who just had 
no opportunity of escape from the inevitability that they were going to face. It's impossible, I think, in order to really appreciate that level of despondency that these individuals must have felt, which is the message, I guess, in a way that you try to communicate every day at the museum. It is. And I think in the case of the Nolan exhibition, shaken to his core, and mm. which, as you described in the beginning, that was the actual effect of visiting the site of this death camp that it had on him. And it's interesting that once he visited the site and was confronted with the reality, you know, in, you know, on the site and in a much more, you know, visceral way, mm. the kind of things that he was faced with, it's, he could not paint Auschwitz. Because, as we know, this series that he did was in preparation for an article he was to illustrate for a friend of his who was writing for um, the London's Observer. And he, he couldn't paint. So he, he couldn't see Auschwitz or the camps being the subject of art yeah. once he'd actually gone to visit this place. Yeah. I also noticed in the museum there's some documentation, a leaflet that I picked up. There's some rather extensive essays in there. Have they been written especially for your exhibition? Well, one in particular has been written for the exhibition, and that is the one that um, Dr. Avril Elba wrote. And again, it's a question of just knowing who to target as being the best person for the job. Yeah. And one of the one of the um, images, or no, series of images, but actually one of the iconographies or motifs in Nolan's work in that third series that I spoke of, that features quite prominently a cross, which one could also read as a crucifixion. Um, and the cross had um, very often smoke emanating from it, which is a very clear reference to the crematoria and to the chimneys in Auschwitz. Mm. Um, it, was, it was quite a challenging motif for Jewish Museum to have a, a Christian symbol yeah. in many of the artworks. And I asked um, Dr. Elbe if she wouldn't write something for us. Mm. So the piece that she wrote and what's available in the museum in our brochure and on a shortened version on the actual exhibition is written by her and um, so well placed to do it because years back she was the museum's um, head of the education department and now she's associate professor um, in Holocaust Studies and Jewish Civilization, if I've got her title correctly, at the universe, at Sydney University. And she wrote, her piece is amazing. It absolutely interprets some of the kind of multitude of symbolic references that Nolan's work evokes. Mm. So I would just really recommend everyone to read it, obviously to see the exhibition, but then to read her article, which is done very academically, but done in a way that is very easy to understand and allows for an open interpretation while also providing multiple you know, options for mm. interpretation. Mm. I, I found everything that was written in there quite compelling. I mean, I don't want to say it's a great memento to take away from the exhibition, but it is certainly worth uh, holding on to. That's what I, why we felt almost everything in the exhibition is in the brochure, mm. but we felt very strongly we wanted a memento for people to take home so that they could, you know, just digest it again, mm. if you like, mm. after the fact. Mm. It's a highly relevant exhibition. You've pulled it all together to a certain extent, and you've given credit to others. Do you think this could be an exhibition that could tour to other similar museums, not just in Australia, but around the world? I think that 
an idea is very much on the table. Mm. I think the museum recognizes that it would make a really good traveling exhibition because it it does two things really in attracting an arts audience as well as a history Holocaust audience and brings the two together so perfectly. Um, it's not our collection to travel and it's not our collection at this point mm. but I do think that we are seeking to possibly um, well let me rather say we investigate in the possibilities of perhaps acquiring some of the works wow. in which case that would be something that we would hope to do Yeah, well good luck with that Rosalind before I let you go, anything else you've got coming up at the museum we should preview or preempt? I'd be quite excited to tell you about the exhibition that's coming after Nolan Yeah. and um, it's called Reverberations, mm-hmm. and it's essentially a testimony exhibition. My colleague Shannon Biederman is curating that one. Right. Um, it features video testimony of more than 40 of our museum's Holocaust survivors, and it also features um, something that's really revolutionary in a sense, um, or, or sort of technologically revolutionary in that we call dimensions in testimony and it's um a, it's an interactive biography so whereby we have interviewed six holocaust survivors over a period of a week asking them each up to a thousand questions and um the the technology or the ai allows a visitor to interact with this digital survivor and retrieve through voice recognition um, the correct answer to the question that they wish to ask. So it's fascinating from a technology point of view, and it's absolutely riveting from uh, hearing the survivor's voice. And our museum is all about really giving history a voice, and I think that will be a fantastic exhibition to look forward to. All right. Well, Roz, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast and for staging this collection of works that so little in general is known about. Thank you, Tim. That's Rosalind Sugarman, head curator with the Sydney Jewish Museum, and the exhibition of Sydney Nolan's Holocaust works, Shaken to His Core, is the name of the exhibition. It's running until October the 23rd at the museum, and for more information, head to www sydneyjewishmuseum.com.au That is this edition of the podcast for now. A transcript of our discussion can be downloaded at www.insidethegallery.com.au and also there are links there to our Facebook and Instagram pages and you can sign up for our newsletter there as well which alerts you to any new episodes. I'm Tim Stackpole. Until the next episode, bye-bye for now.